Welcome to Left, Right, and Unwanted, the podcast where people across the political spectrum discuss ideas and politics. I'm Lauren, and I'm the left. I'm Morgan, and I'm the right. I'm Luke, and I'm the unwanted. What are your thoughts on universal health care? Do you like it? For starters, it's something I wish I had some of the time. That's one of my thoughts on universal health care. I'm a little more, I have very good insurance and my parents had very good insurance. I know that, yeah, universal health care would be good for a lot of people. Um, we probably still would have been on our, like, I say that, don't know what it would have been like if we actually had universal health care, but my insurance was really good growing up. And so I never lacked for it. Well, I mean, I'm against it. I think it's like any other good uh, socialized provision of a good is much less efficient for, for the same reasons that socialized provision of any other goods are efficient. Besides the obvious incentive problem, you have, you know, calculation issues and knowledge problems. I wish we had more of a free market in, in healthcare. We have very much not that. I don't like our current system, but I, I prefer it to a centralized healthcare system. title of this article is why doesn't the united states have universal health care the answer begins with policies enacted after the civil war it's written by janine interlandy a member of the new york times editorial board a journalist the enemy of the people on her website she said she focuses often on telling the stories of people grappling with trauma and loss and she actually has a science background she has a ba in biology and an ma in environmental science before she pursued her MS in journalism. Born in Columbia, but adopted and raised in New Jersey. This article is not about whether we should have universal health care. The argument it's making is that the reason we don't have universal health care is because of slavery and policies associated with it enacted after the Civil War. So she starts it by talking about uh, smallpox epidemics that happened around the post-Civil War South, particularly in makeshift camps where many thousands of newly freed uh, African-Americans had taken refuge, but leaving surrounding white communities comparatively unscathed. As the Union troops were going through um, South, a lot, of, a lot of slaves left plantations, followed the army around where they were quasi-drafted um, into doing work, you know, usually things like ditch digging and, and those kinds of things. And a lot of, a lot of them died and caught diseases, as, as this mentions, and, and didn't have a whole lot of nutrition because when you practice total war and you try to destroy, you know, an entire areas, infrastructure, and way of life that's going to disrupt food production and food distribution. So that's not really, not really surprising to me that that's something that would have happened. A couple interesting things I found on the whole smallpox thing in this time period. Uh, number one, the reason they were experiencing an epidemic at this time. So there had already been inoculation and then a vaccination developed in like the late 1700s, I think. But after a while, inoculation started being banned because they were worried someone who was inoculated was still contagious and can spread it. But then they started neglecting to vaccinate citizens. So it led to having people that had never been exposed to smallpox susceptible to it because there already was a vaccination before the Civil War. Um, and then another thing I found, it did seem to dis... So, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think I'm right. 
both the Union and Confederate armies actually had policies stating that soldiers needed to be vaccinated. But when they, I mean, when you think about getting bodies on the field to fight in a war, that the policies kind of took a backside to people being vaccinated in the first place. Okay. You might say that, but yeah, were they actually practicing? So the gross thing with the vaccination, I think the other reason it kind of fell out of favor in general is the way this used to work is to be vaccinated. Scabs from people who had been previously inoculated had to be collected, which is super nasty and made even worse by the fact that if they took a scab from someone who also suffered from syphilis, it could quickly spread through an entire troop or to others as well. I guess anyway, back where back where she starts discussing it, mm-hmm. it's in the context of number one, it disproportionately affecting black regiments over white ones for service members. And then also it wasn't necessarily being treated fairly at the time. I did a little more research into it. And part of the concern was that white people were worried epidemics would then spill into their own communities because of how highly contagious and deadly smallpox was. So that was more seen as the motivation for why the treatment changed, not necessarily in an effort to protect anyone who might be infected with it. And I imagine a lot of it's just hard to track and and know how what was happening back in terms of stuff like this during the war. I imagine they had bigger things they were trying to make notes of and follow and understand. And that's how mo- a lot of illnesses were. Unfortunately, they weren't considered a huge pressing issue until it was wealthier people that were being affected by it. And yeah, expected and I would never have made the, the leap that this is why we don't have universal health care today. I think she more introduces it as a contributing factor to racism at the time. I'm not sure she's trying to say smallpox directly relates to a lack of universal health care, but an added issue that came with it is that, so if it was mostly in Black communities at the time, it added negative perceptions of groups that had outbreaks, which I think actually, don't we see that today too, like with COVID? aren't certain groups still disproportionately affected. I think that's what a lot of the numbers are showing now. She then moves into the New Deal policies and talks about how it was largely at the behest of Southern Democrats that farm and domestic workers were excluded from New Deal policies and including Social Security and the Fair Labor Standards Act, which set a minimum wage and also ensured states controlled programs like aid to dependent children, the 1944 Servicemen's Readjustment Act, allowing state leaders to effectively exclude black people. A lot of these New Deal programs, in addition to prolonging the Great Depression, were also really a political to buy the election. If you, if you look at states that states that were safely Democratic or were safely Republican really didn't get a whole lot of WPA funding and stuff. It was in the swing states that all the money was thrown in. And this was an attempt to basically buy the election. It's a little bit of a non sequitur, I think, to talk about states' rights when you're talking about federal programs like the New Deal, but she does anyway. She also doesn't talk about the impact of occupational licensure, which is you know, a government basically making it illegal for certain people to do certain jobs, which and occupational licensure pretty, pretty commonly disproportionately affects um, low income people, like, for instance, 
to be an attorney, you have to go to school for three years. Who, who are the kind of people who can afford to not work for three years and go to school? It's wealthier people. And so in these kinds of occupational licenses, and, and, and there's even more egregious examples like licenses for hairdressing and things like this that require like 10,000 hours of unpaid labor. The American, so state licensing boards across the United States are pretty universally granted licenses to graduates of medical schools accredited by the American Medical Association's Council on Mental Education. And states also require at least a year of postgraduate training for a license to practice medicine, but black graduates were often excluded from internships and from hospital privileges at most institutions. So even though the laws weren't explicitly banning you know, black doctors and black nurses and black medical professionals from the occupation. In practice, they were because of these occupational licensure laws. If you have the barrier of not being in a position to obtain an occupational license, and then when some people are actually able to and are still denied licensure, um, graduation, admittance, whatever, that further bars you from jobs that may offer insurance, which is really kind of where she takes her argument. And then if like in our healthcare system, if you don't receive it through a spouse, a parent or an employer, finding insurance is kind of a different game. Yeah. And that's, that's something that she puts in a throwaway line here. She says access to good medical care was predicated on a system of employer-based insurance. And this is something that I've heard, you know, tons of people talking about, you know, your, your health insurance shouldn't be tied to your job and all this stuff, but not that many people know why health insurance is tied to your job because it's not that way for any other insurance. I mean, you don't get your car insurance through your job. You don't get your house insurance or your renter's insurance through your jobs. The question is, why does why is insurance in America predicated on a system of employer-based insurance? And it goes back to World War II, where the United States put wage restrictions in place during the war. If an employer wanted to hire someone away from a different job, they couldn't offer them more money. So they started offering all these different kinds of benefits because these weren't regulated and these were allowed to be used. And one of the things that employers started doing was offering health insurance. And this was then got after the war got written into the tax code. And so the influence, I have a quote here, the influence of the way the tax system allocates its rewards and exacts its penalties should never be underestimated. Just as home ownership is stimulated by the deductibility of mortgage interest on local property tax payments, so the development of health insurance was stimulated by the tax code. But in addition, the code provided an incentive that shaped a particular and inequitable set of institutional arrangements. It did not assist individual enrollment or even group enrollment per se, such as through neighborhood, religious, or fraternal associations, which were some things that you saw before the war. There were some, for instance, some black neighborhood associations that got together to provide health insurance for people that lived in them. There were fraternal organizations like, you know, Lions Club, those kinds of organizations that offered health insurance. But after the tax code went into place that gave this massive tax break to where health insurance isn't taxed, employer, and no one can compete with employer health insurance. And then because everyone had health insurance, we moved to what's called a fee-for-service method of providing medical care, where basically, I mean, if you, there's no other, very few other things where you go in and like, if you call ahead of time, you're like, what's the price for this? Like, they won't tell you what it's going to cost to do something at the hospital because they don't know. Because it's in, in all this bureaucracy and all these all this paperwork massively inflates uh, healthcare costs. People just think, oh, healthcare is expensive, and I don't know why it is. Well, it's because of the system that was put in place and institutionalized after World War II in the tax code. Yeah, there's a lot more to it than just a yeah, basic cost. Even outside of cost, I don't 
know how it's possible to discuss this without also discussing how confusing and complex health, I mean, throwing cost out the window, it's still a very complex and convoluted system. And if you don't know how to interact with it, it can quickly harm you instead of help you. And plus the whole nonsense of, of having everything paid for by insurance. I mean, like your car insurance covers accidents. It doesn't cover oil changes, doesn't cover gas. It doesn't cover you know, car washes because those are things that everyone has every year. But every, I mean, your physical, like everything goes into, goes through health insurance, which every time you have to have five different people process a charge, that's going to add costs onto it. I have a prescription and I switched pharmacies because at one pharmacy, it used to be like $3. And then I went one time and they were like, it's bringing up as $120. And I was like, that's not what it normally is. And it just was random. It didn't have anything. It was in the middle of the year. It didn't have anything to do with what my insurance covered. So I went to a different pharmacy and it's $10. It's just all weird and crazy. It talks about uh, President Truman's unsuccessful attempt to create universal health care insurance in the 40, in the 1940s. She talks about how the AMA and the National Medical, or the, the AMA called the idea socialist, which I mean, technically it is, but whatever, an un-American and warmed a government intervention in the doctor-patient relationship and used the same arguments in the mid-60s. Yeah, that, that's the arguments that I hear today. I just, I'm skeptical that this is sort of racially motivated. I think that like if I, if someone calls something socialist, I don't think, oh, they hate black people. I think, you know, they don't like socialism. It, it's something that before reading this, I didn't think of as policy due to racism. So I didn't connect those dots, but healthcare is obviously tied to the medical field. And if you look at them, I mean, if you look at maternal mortality rate within our country, black women have a significantly higher maternity, sorry, maternal mortality rate compared to white women. So, I mean, looking at it in the context of just healthcare in general, I mean, I don't think it's that far-fetched. It could maybe, maybe not entirely, but I could see it maybe kind of tying in somewhere along the lines because there's other areas within the healthcare system where racial minorities have worse outcomes than white counterparts. Yeah, I guess, cause I, I had never tied them together like you had said Lauren and if I had ever been asked I would have I would have tied it more towards um I would have tied healthcare more with um like your social status your class but then the argument could be made that that a lot of times is tied could be tied to your race and so it's like my brain and and I don't know if it's because I'm white I don't know if it's because of whatever but my brain has always tied it more towards how much money you have Regardless of universal health care or not, she does say there has never been any period in American history where the health of blacks was equal to that of whites. I mean, it's, I haven't done a ton of research in the area, but I would assume that to be true. And again, I just don't think you can ignore such a, dispa- such a disparity in care and then not see that there could be a possible connection with insurance related. I mean, I think it's all kind of interconnected. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left, Right, and Unwanted. Please tune in next time.